0: When I was in college, I had the opportunity to go to Europe for about a month. <clears throat> Spent two weeks in France and two weeks in Italy. And on our way back, uh, back to the US, we were flying out of Charles de Gaulle Airport in France. And this was about less than three years uh, after 9-11. So the security in the airport was extremely tight still. and. Um, Through the course of our travels, I had picked up a corkscrew for opening wine. We were in France, after all. Um, And going through security, I got flagged. Um, I forgot that it was in my backpack, and so they pulled me aside. Security officer was asking me some questions. I spoke a little bit of French at the time. I speak a little bit more now, but um, I'd just been in France for like two weeks, and so I was feeling kind of confident about my my level of French and was trying to respond um, in in French now. In addition to French, I also knew a little bit of Spanish because I had spent a number of summers working with my dad in construction, working primarily with, um, with Spanish-speaking immigrants from South and Central America. And um, so I had picked up some Spanish, and one of the things, one of the phrases that was very familiar to me was the phrase for throwing out the trash, tirado el basura, um, because as a, kind of the grunt worker on the crew, I did a lot of that. I, I did a lot of tirar el basura. Um, in the stress of this moment, though, I, I made a mistake. I took the Spanish word, tirar and I confused it with a very similar French word, tirer. And so I was saying over and over again, je vais le tirer, je vais le tirer, thinking that I was saying, um, I'm going to throw it out. I, I just want to throw it out. It's, it's okay, not a big deal, I'm going to throw it out. I could see as I was saying it that the officer who had a large like military-style assault rifle strapped across her chest didn't understand what I was trying to communicate. And eventually she politely said to me in English, you can go, we're, we're gonna throw this away. Um, afterwards though, I realized that like, something wasn't right and, and I realized that I had made a mistake and so I looked up uh, what I had been saying and what I would actually been saying was, um, I'm going to shoot it. <laughs> I'm going to shoot it. And I, and I kept repeating it over and over because I thought that they, I, maybe I was mispronouncing something. And they didn't hear me. So I just over and over again in the middle of the airport three years after 9-11, I was saying, I'm going to shoot it. It's okay. I'm going to shoot it. <clears throat> What's the point of the story? the way that I was speaking in that moment revealed something important about who I was, about my identity, namely that I was not a proficient French speaker. <laughs> also that I was an idiot. <laughs> Thankfully, it didn't land me like in, a, you know, in an interrogation room or on the no-fly list, um, but it, it revealed something about me nonetheless. And I think Paul's point here is similar. The way that we speak reveals something important about who we are, about our identity. And specifically, how we speak among unbelievers, an unbelieving world, has the potential to significantly impact our witness as followers of Jesus. This is the third part in a sub-series in this broader series of Sticks and Stones called My Big Mouth Strikes Again. And this morning, we're going to be talking about grumbling and complaining. Let's pray. Father, we're coming to your word this morning to receive from you the nourishment that our souls need. Father, I pray that your spirit would cause your word to take root in our hearts in a way that would produce fruit for us, for our church. And for our witness as disciples in this community. In Jesus' name. Amen. The text here, Philippians 2:14, it, it uses the language of grumbling and disputing. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time kind of distinguishing, grumbling, or disputing. Um, this the, the the term disputing here, I think, could mean a lot of things. It means it could mean kind of being quarrelsome or argumentative but as I studied it it's also really closely linked to this idea of grumbling um, especially when you look at the Old Testament and and the way that it's used in the Old Testament and so I'm not gonna for the sake of our of simplicity for the sake of discussion this morning I'm going to use language of grumbling and complaining um, but I do want to very clearly define what I mean and I think what the Bible more importantly what the Bible means when it talks about this idea of grumbling and complaining. So what is grumbling and complaining? I stood here a few weeks ago when I was preaching from Psalm 119, and I said that we should, we should not be afraid to share where, where we're struggling, where we're hurting, We should be be able to share openly and honestly with people around us where we're experiencing difficulty, where we're struggling, where where the circumstances in our lives are painful. So the question I think I want to answer here is, when does talking about our pain and our displeasure and our discomfort, and even talking about situations where we feel like we've been wronged by other people, when is it okay, and when is it grumbling and complaining? And to answer that question, I want to look back at Exodus chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, but we'll have it up on the screen. I'm going to read Exodus 16, 1 through 8. Now, just briefly, sorry, briefly, context. The nation of Israel has just come out of the land of Egypt, like two chapters before the Red Sea parted, and they saw God do incredible miracles. They're on the other side now, headed to Sinai, and so it's, it's not been long since, the, since God has done incredible miracles for them, um, but very quickly their attitude starts to change, and so this is what we see here in chapter 16. They set out from Elam. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare, uh, what, they, what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumbled against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. This is one of many situations that play out almost exactly in the same way through this period of Israel's wandering in the wilderness. It's not the first and it's not going to be the last. Um, And I I want to see, uh, there's a few things that I think we can see here about what grumbling is, what it looks like and how it functions in our lives. The first thing we see here is that grumbling and complaining is never just an expression of pain or discomfort or displeasure. It has at its root, an accusation. Now, it starts with self-pity, right? The people of Israel say, I wish we would have just died. I wish the Lord would have just killed us rather than bringing us out here into the wilderness. But then it turns, right? You, Moses, I knew it. You brought us out here to kill us you just brought us out here. You went through all this trouble to bring us out here in the wilderness to murder us. I knew it. If we are able to honestly evaluate, I think, the underlying motivations of our grumbling and complaining, we would find that underneath our complaining, whether it's about a difficult coworker or family member or a situation where we don't think we're getting treated the way that we should or maybe a situation where we don't think things are being done the way that we want them to be done underneath our grumbling and complaining are accusations and judgments if my coworker wasn't so lazy or incompetent i wouldn't have to pick up their slack it seems like they're just intentionally trying to make my life miserable My spouse wasn't so selfish, they would carry some more load around here and it wouldn't all fall on me. If they just did things my way, wouldn't be in such a bad situation. Now, most of us won't say it that way, at least not in public but if we're humble enough to excavate our hearts or even more to ask friend or spouse to help us excavate our hearts we will find that there are accusations and judgments simmering under the surface of our grumbling james says it this way james 5 9. do not grumble against one another brothers so that you may not be judged Now, if you're familiar with your Bibles, that phrase, that you may not be judged, should sound familiar to you. Matthew 7, 1, Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. In other words, judge not so that you may not be judged. Exact same phrase. For with the same judgments you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. So James is making clear here that when we grumble against one another, against the people we work with, against the people we live with, people we find difficult to get along with, we are actually making sinful judgments about their motivations and their character. When we grumble <clears throat> against other people, we aren't, we aren't doing it, if we're honest, to bring constructive feedback with the intent to build them up and help them. When Israel came to Moses, the conversation didn't go like this. Hey, Brother Moses, um, you have a minute. Listen, I know you have a lot on your plate um, trying to, you know, lead the nation of Israel and everything. Um, and listen, we are really grateful for everything that you have done so far. Like the Red Sea situation, I mean, that was, that was impressive. Um, the thing is, I just wanted to, you know, mention that we're, we're running low on food here and certainly not blaming you for that. Um, but, you know, we, I'm just wondering if, you know, we could work together and, and try and find a solution or if you had any thoughts about how, how we should address that. That's not how that situation went, <laughs> Right. When we are grumbling and complaining, we want to make known that we haven't been treated in the way that we deserve, and the implication is, if those people were as thoughtful, as capable, as intelligent, as godly as I am, then I wouldn't have to deal with this mess. But our grumbling isn't just against other people, is it? We see it right here in the text. Verse 8, And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against Him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Our grumbling, even when it's directed towards other people, is not ultimately about other people. And this is where, if we are willing to let it, the gospel, the good news about all that God is and all that He's done for us in Christ can actually get some real work done in the deepest places of our hearts. grumbling and complaining at the deepest level flows from a wrong view of who God is and what he has done. It brings an accusation, ultimately, against God that he's wronged us in some way. And rather than bringing my pain and my struggle to God as the one who can help me, I withdraw from God and view him as a harsh taskmaster or an overbearing boss or an absent father. Curtis Allen says, complaining about God is a sin. Complaining to God is a psalm. Here's my working definition of grumbling. Grumbling is an expression of growling displeasure that accuses God and others for not giving me what I want. Grumbling is an expression of growling displeasure that accuses God and others for not giving me what I want. So, if you're wondering whether venting to your spouse or commiserating with your coworkers falls into the category of grumbling, I think there's a couple questions that we can ask for evaluation. Number one, am I making judgments about the motives or character of the people that I'm talking about? Number two, am I expressing my displeasure in a way that acknowledges God's sovereign rule over the people and circumstances that I'm talking about? Now, please don't hear me saying that we shouldn't share where we're struggling or hurting with the people in our life, especially the people that are closest to us. That's not what I'm saying. We should be able to say to our spouse or to... The people in our fight club, guys, I'm really struggling with my boss right now. Sometimes it just feels like like he's out to get me, like I can't do anything right. And I want to honor God, I want to represent Christ well in the way that I'm relating to him, but if I'm honest, I'm really struggling. I and I just leave like every conversation with him just feeling angry and bitter. And I don't know, I don't, that's not the way that I want to relate to him. Will you please pray for me? And do you have any thoughts for how I can relate to him? See, there's a difference between that posture and a response that goes like sending your coworker a message after a meeting. Man, can you believe that guy? He's such a moron. He just always takes credit for our work and then throws us under the bus when things don't go. Well, I just can't stand him. You hear the difference, right? Now, I'm using extremes and exaggerating to make a point. But what Paul, I think, wants us to see here in Philippians 2 is that grumbling and complaining reveals something very significant about what we functionally believe at the deepest levels of who we are. So in the time that we have left, what I want to do is first I want to dig in a little bit deeper into what I'm calling the problem of grumbling. What does grumbling reveal about the functional beliefs in our hearts? And then very quickly at the end, we're going to look at the power of confident contentment. So let's look first at the problem of grumbling. The foundation of this whole series, the Sticks and Stones series, was laid out by Kenny from Matthew 12, 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does grumbling and complaining reveal about our hearts? And I want to look at three functional beliefs that lead to grumbling and complaining. What do I mean by functional beliefs? I mean, not what we say we believe, but what we actually believe underneath the surface, that's producing the fruit in our lives. Whether it's conscious or not. Because sometimes we're not even conscious of those things until the fruit comes out. So I think the gospel and God's word here wants to help us to excavate some of those functional beliefs that result in grumbling and complaining. Number one, I grumble and complain when I believe that I'm not getting something or being treated in a way that I deserve. I grumble and complain when I believe that I'm not getting something or being treated in a way that I deserve. When I grumble and complain, what I'm really saying and what I functionally believe in that moment is that I deserve better. I shouldn't have to deal with this. I deserve more respect or recognition. I deserve a break. I deserve not to have cancer. I deserve a higher salary. And when I don't get what I deserve, I'm not just hurt or disappointed, I'm indignant and offended. So, what does the gospel have to say to my distorted sense of entitlement? <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our body and our mind carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The gospel says that the only thing I deserve by rights is God's just And holy wrath. And rather than giving me what I deserve for my lust, for my pride, for my anger, for my selfishness, for my carelessness, for my grumbling and complaining, for my rejection of his loving rule in my life, for my active enjoyment of things that I know he hates. Rather than giving me what I deserve, he poured out every drop of the wrath that I deserve on his perfectly blameless, infinitely undeserving son. And in place of that wrath, I've not only received mercy, but I received an eternity of infinitely satisfying blessings and benefits as a free gift of God's immeasurable grace. Friends, it's hard to grumble when we are functionally living out of the reality and awareness of God's grace towards us in Christ. The problem is that we don't often enough live out of that reality. And so we need to be reminded We need to be reminded through God's word, through gospel-saturated books, through fellowship with brothers and sisters in our missional community, in our fight clubs, through singing, through preaching, through every means of grace that we can get our hands on. We need to be reminded of who we were apart from Christ and all that God has done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Number two. I grumble and complain when I believe that following Jesus should be comfortable and easy. Now, if I did a survey right now and I asked you, should following Jesus be comfortable and easy? I think, I hope, most of you would say no. You know your Bibles well enough to know that Jesus makes it pretty clear that following him looks something like taking up a cross, an instrument of torture and death, denying ourselves, and walking a hard and narrow road. It's not exactly a description of comfort and ease. But this is the path that we know Jesus promises will lead to abundant life, inexpressible joy, peace that passes understanding, and eternal reward. So in the end, it's not a bad trade-off. And everyone who has come to Jesus has counted the cost and said, I'm ready to take up my cross and follow you, Jesus. The problem is that we don't often enough, we have a difficult time connecting the dots between that coworker that I really have a hard time getting along with that situation where I really don't feel like I'm getting what I want or what I deserve, and God's promise towards us to bring to completion the work that he began in us, namely to conform us to the image of Jesus. In other words, we read Matthew 16, 24, and we say, Yes, Jesus, I'm ready to to deny myself and take up my cross and follow you. But when God interrupts my day or my year with problems or people or people's problems that I don't want to deal with, my first response most often is not, thank you, Jesus. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to deny myself and experience more, to die to my pride in my flesh and experience more of your abundant life? Am I the only one? So how does the gospel address my false belief that following Jesus should be comfortable and easy? This one is a little bit more nuanced because there's a lot of ways that this this false belief, I think, can function in our lives. But the most consistent way comprehensive way that I think the New Testament addresses this question is by calling us over and over again to consider and follow the example of Jesus. What do I mean? Remember when Jesus's disciples are grumbling in, in Luke 22 about who's going to be the greatest among them? Jesus reminds them Because he's already said it once in Luke, he reminds them again that God's kingdom isn't like this world. That those who are the greatest are those who serve. And the illustration that he gives in Luke 22, verse 27 is, "...for who's greater from an earthly standpoint, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves." Implication, if I'm serving and I'm the greatest among you, then you should also follow my example. He does the same thing in John 13, 13 when he's washing his disciples' feet. He says, you call me teacher and Lord and right you are, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And Paul does the exact same thing. He follows the same model right here in Philippians 2, just before the section that we read. He calls people to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Remember what we just talked about, about my self-righteous judgments and accusations. How do I do that? Well... Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. In other words, follow the example of Jesus. So if I'm struggling with self-pity, with self-righteousness, with or plain old selfishness, because I'm being asked to give more of myself than I want to give, God's Word calls me to look to Jesus. I need God's Spirit. The thing that I need most in that moment is the example of my Savior, that for God's Spirit to impress on my heart the reality that self-sacrificing love is the job description of every disciple. That's how Jesus treated me, and that's the example that he's left for me to follow. And at each point when I'm tempted to grumble or to complain about how hard things are, to wonder, why can't I just have it easy for once? <clears throat> why can't why can't I do the things that my friends are doing? Why can't I have some of the comforts that I see people around me having? At each point where I'm tempted to grumble and complain, God's word invites me to lift up my eyes off of my circumstances and remember the example of my savior, Jesus. Hebrews 12:3, consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If King Jesus lived a life of a suffering servant, then I shouldn't be surprised when he calls me to do the same. Number three. I grumble and complain when I believe lies about who God is. Very simply, and I've already said this, I want to unpack it a little bit more. All of our grumbling and complaining at the root level flows from a wrong view of who God is. And it shouldn't surprise us, right? Because from the very beginning of human history, Satan's number one tactic for manipulating us, for manipulating humanity, is telling lies about the character of God. And to illustrate this, I want to just very briefly show you a tool that we've used here for a number of years. A tool that helps to very simply do the kind of heart excavation that we're talking about here. If you're coming to the seminars later this afternoon, uh, Jason and Rebecca will unpack this in much more detail. If you're not coming to the seminars, my hope is that you'll realize you made bad life choices and... <laughs> <coughs> As long as you bring your own lunch and you don't need childcare, they'll probably still let you in. So can you show this diagram, bring, this, bring up this diagram, Gabe. So I don't know if you can see this. They'll have much better illustrations than this. You, this is the extent of my artistic uh, knowledge. What I want you to see is if you look in the center at the tree, the tree is, is, is our life. And let's start at the top. So what I do, this is the fruit in my life. What I do, what I think, what I say. And if I work backwards from that what I can see is that what I do flows from who I see myself to be, who I believe that I am. And who I believe that I am flows from what I believe God has done. And what I believe God has done flows from who I believe God is. So if you if you go to the right side here and I don't know if you can see that because it's kind of small. Let's take an example. I'm grumbling and complaining. I'm really struggling, and I just feel like there's this churning sense of discontentment that's spilling out into accusations and grumbling. Well, why is that? We've already said, we've already seen in, this, in the first point in this section that at some level I'm probably believing that I'm not getting what I deserve. That's what I'm believing about myself. I'm not getting what I deserve. So then I move one step further. What has God done to me to, for, for this to happen? Well, God is withholding good things from me. Now, we, none of us would say that, but if we do the work to, to get down to the roots here, that's what we're functionally believing. God has withheld some good thing from me, or maybe God hasn't done anything. He's left me on my own. Why? God doesn't really love me. He's not really loving. He's not really in control. God isn't even here. I don't even know if God cares about me. I don't even know if God even exists. You see, right? You work back from from the fruit and we can take one step at a time to see and ultimately all of our grumbling and complaining and all of the fruit and and they'll they'll do a much better job than this of unpacking this and then taking you around to the other side of the tree because I'm not going to do that. But all of our grumbling and complaining flows from ultimately... Lies that we believe about who God is. And take that down. It's what Moses said to the people, right? When they come grumbling and complaining and accusing him, he says, Who am I? I'm nobody. God's the one who's ordained the circumstances that you're in right now. And if you have accusations to bring, ultimately, against Him. But friends, the reverse is also true. If we are living out of a functional belief that God really is who He says He is, and that He really does and will do the things that He says He will do, that He really does love us more than we could ever imagine, That he really is sovereignly ordering every circumstance of our lives for our ultimate good and for his glory. That the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead actually dwells in me and will give power to my weak and unwilling flesh. That he really calls us to live lives of sacrificial love toward those around us. And that daily dying to ourselves really is the path to abundant life. If, we, if those realities are functioning at the deepest levels of who we are, it's not going to just change our words. change the world. And so in the, as we come to a close, I, I want to look briefly at the power of, of confident contentment. We're going to go back to where we started in Philippians 2. Paul says, Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Why? So that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that our culture is experiencing unique, social, and political turmoil. At least it's unique in the last 50 years or so. And what is interesting to me is the fact that Regardless of political or ideological or even socioeconomic categories, everyone feels like the world in general and the United States in particular are going in the wrong direction. Now, they have different reasons for why they think that, but everyone has the same underlying sentiment that things are, things are wrong, things are, are going in the wrong direction. The New York Times published an article in July 2022 that, said, that was titled, Is the World Really Falling Apart or Does It Just Feel That Way? And the truth is, many people, especially in the U.S., really do feel like the world is falling apart. And the result of the way that that's playing out in our culture is this churning sense of discontentment, anxiety, anxiety, Anger, outrage, hatred, and even violence. In short, we live in a crooked and twisted generation. And the question the passage is asking us, the question God's Word is asking us is, are we using our words to shine gospel light into the contexts of unbelieving people, of hurting people, of broken people that God has placed us in? The reality is that our words have more potential to impact the unbelieving people, our unbelieving neighbors and friends and coworkers, I think, than almost anything else that we do. Why? Because everyone sees how we talk. Your coworkers probably won't get an up close view of how you're parenting your kids or how you're spending your money. It's not that those things don't matter, they do. And they flow from what we functionally believe at the deepest levels of who we are. But your coworker will see how you talk about your boss. Your neighbors will see how you speak about people you don't agree with. Your family members will observe how you talk about challenges that you're facing in your life and difficulties that you have. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. What if you were known in your office as the least likely person to grumble and complain? What if you were known among your neighbors or friends as someone who just always seemed to have a sense of thankful contentment? The question I'm asking is, Are we living our lives, and especially using our words, in a way that might actually lead someone to ask the question, Hey, why is it that you always seem to be so thankful and content? Like, I don't hear you complaining the way that I hear other people do. Why why is that? Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that we should all just slap on a fake smile and pretend everything is okay so that we can be good Christians. I'm saying what I think the Bible says, which is that when the reality of the gospel, all that God is and has done for us in Christ... Functionally seeps down into the deepest places of our heart, it will produce a joyful and confident contentment that will cause the world to take notice. That's what Paul is saying here. And this is why, friends, it's so important to constantly saturate ourselves in the truth of who God is and what He has done for us in Christ. It's why we talk so much about the gospel. Not just as something that we believe one time to get out of hell. But as the source and substance and sustenance that we need to live every moment of every day of every season of our lives. Last week Jason talked about the idea of revival. And I've been thinking about that this week. Our culture is starving for purpose, for meaning, for identity, for something that's real and authentic. And as the atmosphere of our culture grows darker, I really do believe that there is an opportunity for the church to shine more brightly. And one of the reasons why I think this series is so important and so powerful is because of this direct link between my mouth and my heart it's creating opportunities for god's word to really excavate and expose areas where maybe the gospel isn't functioning in my life the way that i thought that it was or that god intends it to and that makes me really excited because there is nothing that would position us for more fruitfulness as individuals and as a church than for the gospel to functionally take root in the deepest places of our hearts in such a way that the reality of who God is and what he has done for us increasingly shapes how we think, how we speak, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, and everything else about our lives. That's what revival is at the most fundamental level. The gospel seeping into the deepest places of our hearts and reshaping us from the inside out. So may God do what's pleasing to him. Let's pray.